winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 52nd episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you well and happy. Today, we take a trip to an island near here that this podcast has not yet visited. I'm absolutely delighted to say that this episode is a chat with Judy Gibson of the Isle of Erid. Erid is a tidal island off the Ross of Mull with a remarkable and long history. Judy and I chatted back at the start of lockdown over the internet on a fairly poor line which cut out several times. I've tried to bridge the gap where things drop out here and there so there may be the odd pop and whistle but I've kept them in for you as I felt it made more sense than me saying and this is where the signal breaks down and then returning to the chat. It was brilliant to chat to Judy. We've never had a chance to meet in person so I was delighted that she made the time to talk to me. Our conversation covers a lot of ground. We talk about how her family first came to holiday on Iona and then on to Erid where her mother eventually chose to settle. We talk about Judy's life and adventures and go into detail about Erid's remarkable history. At one point, Judy talks about a child's discovery of the land and the space around them. I think this is the best way I've ever heard this sense of place, space and connection explained. It's something really special. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a Dodmere Havers about other podcasts and the recent What We Do in the Winter live at home event. And now, it is with great pleasure that I hand you over to Judy Gibson of the Isle of Erid. Who are you? Okay, well, um, I'm Judy Gibson. Um, I live on the Isle of Erid and have done for the last four years. But you've got a connection that goes much deeper than for years. You've been coming to the island for a long time. Is that right remembering that? Well, I have. I've been coming here since I was about 11 years old. And before that, uh, I would, would go to Iona. We, I think I probably first went to Iona as a baby with my parents for summer. And then they went every year until I was about 10 or 11. And then we started coming to Erid. So, yes, there's a long history of visiting it in the summer months. That goes back a long way, yeah. So where was home uh, that you came from? Where was the home that you came from? Was it in, down south? Was it in the borders? Uh, no, La- England, North London. Um, so we would, uh, when we used to come to Iona, we would come up on the sleeper train, which in those days, because it was before the Beecham Cuts, you could get on the train in Euston and it would take you all the way to Oban. And in fact, better than that, I remember, you know, falling asleep or partially asleep on the train, which was a diesel train when you left Euston, and then waking up and looking out the windows, we went through the highlands and it was a steam train and you could see the smoke coming back along the, the train. So I, I still have a memory of that. So that was, I mean, that shows you a bit how long ago that was, um, but beautiful. it was quite an amazing journey. And then, the, and then in those days, of course, we didn't have roll on, roll off car ferries. There was, a, there was a ferry that took you to Craig Newell that didn't take cars. And there was the George's Fifth steamer, that round trip of mile to Iona. So that's the way we used to go if we could. Um, and then you'd get, you know, take a good part of the day and then you'd arrive at Iona and then be ferried from the steamer to the Iona on one little red boats, the open boats. So that was how we used to come. 
Sometimes when we arrived or left, the weather was too bad for the George V steamer to run. And then we'd have to make the crossing across Mull. And that was not an experience I ever enjoyed as a child because that was before they built the road that exists now. So the And you can see the old road in places, particularly through the Glen. It followed every single dip and contour of the hill. And it was a very, very long journey and a very old <laughs> old bus. And I always, always remember being sick. And it's interminably, <laughs> thinking you were never, ever going to get to the end of the journey. Um, but one did, of course. So that was always a trip. You know, if we couldn't go on the steamer, then we'd have to make that trip. So it was quite a journey. Fantastic. Whereabouts were you in North mm. London? Oh, um, sort of uh, right at the end, um, sort of between Barnet and Enfield and the, and the north. So sort of on the we were actually on the edge of the Green Belt. So from our house, you could look out over fields and woodlands in one direction. And then basically London was behind us. So that was kind of quite a nice location to, to grow up as a kid. I think it's worth digging into London for a second because would I be right in thinking to say that you grew up in the 1960s then? Well, 19, late 1950s. Wow. <laughs> uh, into the 60s, yes. I was, I, yeah. I mean, we first came to Iona probably 1955, something like that. Oh my goodness, yeah. wow, okay. So yeah. um, I was wondering, what what do you remember of the contrast of home, uh, nor- North London, a bit more suburban, but then the centre of London was, must have been so different. And then Iona, what was the, the, con- the contrast of that like for you? Iona wasn't as busy in those days anyway, but there was sort of the freedom you still have there where you can go out of your door and you don't have to worry about traffic and you can just go and walk and, you know, do what you want. So I think that was... That was lovely. Um, as kids, I mean, we, you know, we used to go all over the place. And my brothers, I remember my uh, one of my brothers would spend most of his vacation working on the red boats because in those days you could get a job, an unpaid job, but that didn't seem to matter, as a bow boy on one of the red boats. So you'd you'd stand on the bow and as soon as it came up to the jetty, you'd leap ashore and tie it up. Now, they they wouldn't do that. There's no way could you do that now. And this is, I mean, my brother must have been eight or nine at the time, but he'd go, he'd get up and he'd be, and of course it's one of those things, there was a little bit of competition to get that job. So you had to get up there as soon as the red boats were ready to go. So he that's what he'd do. He'd get up and he'd go down to the jetty and he'd spend the whole day going back and forth on the red boats to the, to the steamer and then come home. And I, he was in you know, bliss. And I remember feeling a little bit like this was sort of not really open to girls. But there was one time when you could do that, which was when they uh, were getting the sheep off the island to take them to market. Because then they used to take the sheep on the George V steamer. They'd empty out the hold. I, I mean, I suppose it was, I can't remember exactly which bit of the deck, but anyway, they'd clear it out and then they'd get the sheep from the jetty to the King George V steamer in the red boats and they'd pack as many sheep as they could in every red boat. And they so they needed people to help then. So lots of people would go down and, and as a girl, I, I would, you know, go down and then often I could get out, get go out on the red boats as well because they needed people to sit around the edge of the boats to make sure all the sheep's heads were above, you know, so they weren't going to suffocate and also to stop them, stop them panicking and leaping out of the boat and going in the water. So that was the time that I could actually go out and back on some red boats. That's fantastic. That's a complete contrast to the northern yeah. line. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, right. I mean, it just, yes, yeah, so different, so different. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. 
What did your folks do in London town? What were they? Both my parents uh, had worked for the BBC for a while. My mum as a producer and scriptwriter, but she sort oh. of gave that up when she had started a family. She did a little bit from home trying to sort of write with three kids round her feet, which I think she managed bravely for a few years, but didn't manage to keep that going for much, a lot longer. Uh, and my dad was uh, working for the BBC for a while, and that's what brought him up to Iona. I think he was doing a program on the Iona community when it was first starting off with George MacLeod and came up in order to interview him and, and you know make a program about it. And that was the first time he'd come to Iona, and he sort of fell in love with it and thought, I'll bring the family back you know, for holiday. And that was me and my mum. I mean, we carried on doing that every summer from then on. Can we talk a little bit about your parents, if they both worked for the BBC, how did they get into the BBC at that particular point in time? Because it seemed like a very different world. Oh, gosh, yes. I don't, I actually don't know their, how they got into it. I mean, <laughs> I'm not too sure of the history there. And they were working in different areas in the BBC. So I think, I don't, I think my dad was, I mean, he he had a job certainly with the BBC for a while where he was actually out in Africa quite a bit because he was involved in the independence. So he was working with the Nigerian broadcasting company to sort of set them up independently from the BBC, which had been sort of, you know, kind of running the show there. Mm -hmm. So he was out there for quite a bit in the late 50s, around 1960. I honestly don't know the history, but before that with him going joining up with the BBC. His encounter with Iona, do you remember what he told you about it? Do you remember him coming back from Iona and going, well, I've just been somewhere special? Or do you remember, what do you remember? Well, I was a, I was a baby. Ah. I mean, literally, I was a baby. I mean, they bathed me in the, in outside the, the Sheelings house on the, on the front street in Iona. So I think I was probably one or, you know, so I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> so you've always but had Iona. But it obviously made an impact on him enough. Yeah, we've all, I've always had Iona. And that's where we would come. You know, when schools broke up for the summer, you know, we'd jump on the cha- train and we'd spend a month on Iona every summer. So my memories are more, you know, probably when I was six, seven, eight, a bit older. And, you know, that, that's, I think, a lot of my memories come from that time. As you're hitting your teen years, I guess the kind of uh, Carnaby Street scene and all that kind of fantastic uh, swinging 60s stuff must have been going on. How did you feel as a teenager to be removed from from what, what you know, so many of us younger kind of, even though I'm 41, think of, wow, the 60s. How did you feel for, to be um, from there to up to Iona? What was, what was that like? Were you like, yeah, Iona? Or were you like, no, I want to be with Ray Davies? No, well, by that time, we were coming to Erid because I was about 10 or 11 when we first started coming to Erid. I I don't remember being resistant to coming up. I mean, maybe I was. I mean, I, I, I do remember just spending a lot of time going for long walks here um, as a teenager. So, you know, maybe that was my way of distancing myself from the family. <laughs> you know? But I mean, I used to enjoy that, just going off with a dog and disappearing for the day. Yeah, I don't I don't remember it being a wrench at all. And in fact, you know, once we were older, you know, I would bring my friends from school and university up here, you know, it became the natural place that everybody wanted to come. So I think it was, it was uh, uh, quite a draw for people really to have somewhere like this. Yeah. So where does the Arid connection come from? How did your family first discover Arid? Our summers, basically the Blacks of Clack and Corrett would empty out the hay out of the barn and move in you know some bunk beds and a table and a gas stove and then we'd turn up and so 
it was I mean it was probably quite quite reasonable but I suspect as the three three of us the three kids got older and wet summers my parents were starting to think maybe this is slightly more salubrious in accommodation we could find uh, so they started looking around for an alternative and I guess it was not much available in Iona I mean by by this time you know Iona was starting to get more and more popular and it was hard to find places so they started looking around and and I guess you know kind of stumbled onto Ered one day and at that time it was owned by Hamish Dawson Bowman who had bought the island from the Duke of Argyll in the 50s, he would come with his friends and family and stay in the row of cottages and would sometimes rent out some of the cottages. And we came over, my father and I, I think, and met Hamish Dawson Bowman and asked him, was it possible to rent a cottage? And he said, yes. The following year, we came and rented the end cottage of the row. And then that winter, Katie McGilvery, who was the last of the McGilvery family that lived in the Croft House, died. And so the Croft House became Hamish Dawson Bowman. He wasn't interested in having it for himself or his friends. It was kind of removed from the street and fairly primitive in those days. So he said to us, would we like to rent the Croft House for our summers instead of the end of the street? He may also have been liked a little bit of distance from three small kids. I don't know. But anyway, um, so my parents jumped at the opportunity. And so that's what happened. We started renting it from him and would come every summer. And then, you know, sometimes at Easter and as time went on at Christmas and, you know, sort of more and more, really. And then when he sold the island, he offered to sell us the co- the cottage, which was kind of bizarre, really. But wow. we... So we bought the cottage and two acres of land, and he saw, and the rest of the island has then changed hands a couple of times with this little lump out of it. <laughs> uh, so it was very, you know, it was just one of those very, very lucky events. And uh, I'm, I'm always grateful, you know, I think as a family, we were always grateful to have, have been given the opportunity. You know, once we bought it, then, of course, you know, it became even more of a, a place to be because, you know, we were always there was always projects to be doing on it and fixing things up. And, you know, so it, it kind of started taking over the family and extended family to this day. So we've been coming here since mid-1960s. Goodness me, that's amazing. What for you was, was the particular draw then as a child, as a wee person, and then growing up? into your teens and beyond that what 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 has been the draw of the island but also how has that changed for you how has the island changed or how is my relationship how's your relationship to the island changed let's get on to the island changing in a wee bit definitely but how's your relationship to the island changed since being a child all the way through to now I think growing up, it was always a lovely place to come and go for walks. And, you know, we had a little boat and, you know, the the boys definitely got very much into the boat and fishing and all of that stuff. And we did a lot of work on the house. So it's been very much um, a learning experience for all of us in do-it-yourself. Thankfully, we're a little bit more skilled now than we were when we first started. And, you know, many projects have been redone multiple times as we've acquired better skills. And the generation that follows me has some real skills now and they're coming and literally (laughs) doing a good job for the first time. So I think it was, you know, it was more than just, you know, a vacation in terms of, you know, sitting on the beach and going for walks because we would invariably be doing things, doing projects. And actually that has always been a bit of an attraction for people coming and staying because people seem to like to be occupied. So people would come and say, oh, give me a job, you know, the next thing they'd know they'd be 
you know, stripping a door down and painting it or, or building a shed or, you know, whatever. So, you know, it's kind of, it seems to have grown that sort of culture. And so a lot of people have sort of stake to claim on the house, you know, not just immediate family, but a stake to claim by by being involved in it in some way. So from my point of view, I mean, definitely there was that side of it, of of just it being sort of really involved in a, in a much more three-dimensional way in, in the place here. Yeah. And then I always used to love just walking here and being out in, you know, the environment. Yeah. And Arid's very special in that there are no cars on the island. There's a tractor path and a tractor, but that's it. And so you go out of the door and that's it. It's just the island. And so as a kid growing up, that sense of freedom is huge. And I see it in my friends' kids when they come. I mean, I saw it in my kids, but now I see it, you know, the same thing happening with with, with little kids of friends. And it's fascinating because they'll come as a, as a baby or a play in the area, literally right around the cottage. And then as they get a bit older, you know, they start going a little bit further, you know, down to the sea or along the shore a bit. And you can see them setting their boundaries themselves. It's not an adult saying, you cannot go down that way, you can't cross the road or whatever. And so kids set their boundaries according to what they feel comfortable with. And it's a lovely way to watch them building their skills in navigating an environment and building their confidence. And so to the point that, you know, you get to a, get to 10 or 11 and you have the whole island at your disposal. And hey, what an amazing opportunity that is. You know, you can just go, you've got all sorts of terrain, rocky shores, sandy beaches, hills, moors, bogs, you know, and you just, you're out there, you know, and, and it's, because it sort of is an island, there, there's a sort of natural boundary. So you kind of, you can kind of get lost a little bit, but, you know, usually you can figure out where you are after a bit of wandering around. So it's got that sort of degree of, of safeness, if you like. But at the same time, it's got lots of challenges. So it's great opportunity for testing your skills in navigating, you know, different terrains. So for seeing kids growing up here, it's just an, a really special place. And, and it's lovely to be able to share that with young families and see, you know, have kids coming back every year and watching them just falling in love with a place and building their relationship, you know. So that's that's huge. And that was my experience and my kids' experience. And as I say, it just keeps getting handed down, you know. So. I've rarely heard that experience better described. Thank you. That's fantastic. Your mum came to live on the island for 20 years. How did your mum's relationship yeah. to it change? And how have you found that your relationship to the island, at now four years into your life here, has changed? Well, it's interesting. And obviously, I think a lot about what it was like for her. Yeah. Very different from is for me. Because when she moved up here, we really hadn't done a lot of the work on the cottage that has been done since then. And so she was very much a pioneer. She basically got the garden together. My, my brother had been up here for a year before mum moved up here and he sort of broke the ground of the garden. But basically mum did through her efforts, you know, got it into a really quite a productive area. And at that time there was no, no trees or bushes or anything like that. It was just open moorland, you know. Yeah. So, um, whereas now, I mean, since then, you know, I, I look out and I've got conifers and bushes and alder trees and, you know, that have all grown in, the, in that 40 years or more and now make a very different environment to garden in than she had. So, 
I often think about her. When she was here, of course, this were going back to the late 1970s, phone conversations were quite expensive. So it was down to letter writing. And at that time, I lived in America. And so we used to correspond with letters, which meant that it was often weeks before, you know, our communication could make it sort of round trip. But she wrote beautifully and with lovely descriptions, many of them very humorous, but about her, you know, sort of literally running over coal frames as they were blowing across the valley and, you know, just having to deal with, you know, just various disasters um, and managing, you know. And I just think that and and the house was drafty and it wasn't well heated and did, the roof leaked and you know all these things that have been fixed pretty much for me so I think she was a, a quite amazing to have sort of managed it all <laughs> but she did she you know she she lived here till she died and of course it was lovely for us I mean I I had a young family at that point and my brother had young kids so we would just turn up you know and she'd be here and there'd be meal and you know beds made and just change the whole experience of coming coming here so huge huge uh, uh impact on us all having her here really why did she choose to come to edit well i don't know <laughs> exactly um except i think that she had been sort of stuck in a sort of north london suburban house raising three kids and then she had a series of elderly relatives that she looked after until oh, they wow. died and I think she got, and then various other because we used to rent out yeah. the top floor and there were various family you know single parent families and anyway I think she had got to a point where she felt like I'm actually done with looking after people and being there for everyone else I'm just going to go and do what I want to do by myself and be up here and that's what she did you know and I think I totally get it really <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's my experience too in the sense that the family want to come here yes I mean they'd come here if I wasn't here yeah. So now it's like, I know they'll come. So it's like, they don't have to think, oh, God, we've got to go see mum. They're going to say, oh, great, we're going to go to Eric. Oh, mum's there. You know, it just changes it, you know. And so it's kind of like a guaranteed place to have visitors, although not right now. But um, and I think, you know, for my mother, it was the same. It was where we'd all turn up and we'd bring our kids and, you know, we'd be there for a long time. And she was always very glad when we went and would appreciate the solitude because, you know, having had five kids running around her for a month i'm sure she was quite glad to be back on herself but then she'd always be looking forward to our next visit yeah in terms of being on the island on her own uh i guess tv signal in the late 70s tv signal wasn't a great thing what um and radio signal was around there was a radio you had medium wave and things like that but did she was she a big reader was that one of her things obviously she's a writer as you say but oh yes she is a big reader and we have inherited her books and that's one of the issues with this place is it is any any Spare wall has to have a bookshelf on it. Um, so, yes, there are plenty of books, and she was an avid reader. I think she single-handedly kept the mobile library going with her massive orders of books. Yeah, she read a lot. She listened to the radio a lot. We never had a TV. We still don't have one here. It's not worth it. The reception's so crap. So um, she used to have an old TV that played VHF. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we'd get sent tapes of, you know, movies and things like that. So I think she used to watch those from time to time. She took up a bit of wood carving. She used to took took up making rag rugs for a while. Um, you know, she was she was definitely observing what was going on around her. I mean, she was very aware of the of the environment around her and so would notice the things going on. So and then she did a lot of gardening. 
Yeah. Did she return to her own writing craft as well? Not in any huge sense. Um, she, I mean, she used to write lovely letters, as I said. She got involved a little bit with the local community because at that time, I mean, the, the community on Erid, the Fintorn community, because when she was here, that was a the time they were trying to raise funds to build a new village hall in Benetton, and they would do a Christmas show every uh, every Christmas with local people doing acts in order to raise funds. And my mum, from with her producing and, and writing experience, kind of corralled the, the Fintorn community that was here at the t- time, and they would put on a play. And she would write it usually. And it would be something local. You know, there was one around the sort of Stevenson lighthouse thing. Mm. Often they would be making pulling, making fun at themselves, you know, which I think was very good. And so she would write these scripts and then and then insist on rehearsals and making sure that everybody learned their lines. And and I think they were I've never saw one. I wish I had. I was never yeah. able to be here when they were on, but um I believe that they were quite quite popular and uh, so that she, she did that as far as I know I'm not aware of any other writing that she did beyond that let's come now to a little bit about your own journey and your own life and then we'll return back to the, the island and set the context of uh, the history of the island but so as a child you grew up in North London and then you have got Erid you've at first Iona as a holiday uh, place to go to then Erid as a pl- place to go what did you do with your life of studies? Did you were, did you go to school? Did you go to university? Where did your travels take you? I went to university. I was at York University and did a biology degree, um, but I didn't really take that anywhere. I got involved with some other students when I was at university, and we started an alternative bookshop in York, which I spent time doing for about five or six years after I left college, and we I mean, it was one of those, you know, 70s experience where people ha- gave us money and donated money and we were able to buy a building and get a bookshop running. And wow, it was great. It was absolutely wonderful. My dream. <laughs> you couldn't do it now. You couldn't, you couldn't do it now. I mean, we had no experience whatsoever. It was a collective, you know, of, uh, I suppose, about, must have been about eight of us. You know, we learned as we went along. But it was it was successful. It had... It, it filled a niche. Well, it was an alternative bookshop. So the idea, our, our remit when we started was to supply books you couldn't get the mainstream bookshop. Ooh, what and like? at that time, with the burgeoning feminist movement, the environmental movement, the gay um, uh, uh, climate, the um, uh, we brought, it brought in a lot of um, political books from America and um, the East, and we had a whole lot of... I mean, we imported quite a lot of books from the States, so we had a whole, we had a very good poetry section, interesting enough. And then we did a lot of feminist writing and uh, environmental stuff. And there was a whole lot of magazines at those time, at that time, which probably don't go, aren't around anymore, like Spare Rib and Undercurrents. And, and we were the supplier of all those. And so people would come to us because they couldn't get that sort of stuff anywhere else. That's amazing. And in fact, lecturers at the university, some of the politics lecturers used to model their courses on the books that we could get. So it was, you know, we, we, we were there at the right time and there was a niche that we, we did a pretty good job of filling, I think. But what happened was that the mainstream bookshops caught on to the fact that there was a lot of interest in feminist literature and environment and gay stuff, and they started stocking it. And so the kind of bread and butter titles 
people could get anywhere. And so it was very hard for us to then have this huge, great mixture of the stuff that was kind of not really bringing us in a lot of money, but we really liked to stock. So, you know, it got, it, it, it sort of did its job in a way, you know, I mean, it kind of got the stuff out there and now it's not too difficult to get most of that stuff. So eventually it kind of folded, but in its heyday, it was, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. What are the writers that stick uh, out for you from that time? Like, was, was that when Virago Press was starting off and things like that? Around yeah, that yeah. Yes, Virago. As I say, we had we imported quite a lot of stuff from the States. Yeah. So we were able to, you Richard know, stop Brotigan. writers that you couldn't easily get. Yeah. Yes, at Richard Brotigan, yeah. Um, we had a whole lot of comic books. They were quite popular, of course. The Freak, what were they called? The Furry Freak Brothers. I remember that. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Anyway, Crazy Cat. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, remember Crazy Cat? Okay. That's cool. So things like that. And there was a movement at that time with quite a lot of alternative bookshops springing up. So we had, there was a, a kind of, um, you know, association of them, you know, where we'd sort of support each other. We also made badges, you know, the little the little buttons badges different campaigns would want you know 500 badges of stop nuclear bombs or you know yeah. women's rights or what's yeah. make those and send them out to various campaigns so that was quite a profitable sideline that we got into so yeah it, you know it was it was sort of taking the opportunity at the time but it would be i can't imagine doing it now such a different economic climate uh, it would be very very challenging yeah how long did you stay in york for after that then I suppose I was there close on 10 years altogether with the university time as well. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And where did your travels take you after York? What was what was next on the horizon? Well, I spent a little time up on the west coast of Scotland in Applecross. Lovely. And then I ended up in the States with my husband and we we, we he, he had a job, got a job over there. So it kind of my life changed rather dramatically from sort of moving around a little bit in this country to going to the States. And that's where I was for the next 30 years. So it's sort of, <laughs> it's a big, a big switch. Whereabouts were you on in the States? I was in Massachusetts, about 30 miles west of Boston. Well, I was in Boston, well, Cambridge. Boston and Cambridge are two cities that, that border a river. Uh, we were in Cambridge when I first moved out there. And then we moved out into one of the suburbs of kind of Cambridge and then we finally moved further out when we bought our first house which was a little cottage and we we couldn't afford Boston prices in those days so we moved further out now it's in the commuter you know distance now so it's it's very different but when we moved there it was fairly isolated from Boston still. What was it like living in North America at that period that must have been quite was it exciting was it quite a, a suburban existence was it what, what was it like? Well it was for me it was a complete transformation of my experience and I wasn't uh, totally happy with the whole thing but I got used to it I mean it was you know because I'd really been living up well in York but then up in Scotland and sort of you know fairly sort of rural areas and definitely not in the middle of a sort of very consumer orientated culture and so I think being sort of suddenly planted in pretty affluent part of the world and you know with all all of that going on it was kind of took me quite a bit of getting used to uh I don't know I mean it was it was I didn't know anybody so it was it was quite hard at first I mean apart from my husband I didn't know anybody so I was and I had small kids so it was you know the first few years were a bit lonely and I you know got to know people through play parks and 
story readings at libraries and stuff, you know, is where I built my, you know, friendships with other mums. So it took, it took a while, I think, but uh, we had a pretty good life, really. I mean, certainly probably for the kids, they had a more, a, you know, a much, um, you know, sort of more affluent upbringing than they probably would have had in this country, I suspect. So it was, it was different. It was different. But I would come back every summer. I mean, p- sort of part of the agreement of going was that I'm coming back every summer. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was sort of twofold. I mean, it was one, you know, because I just loved being here. But it was also I really wanted the kids to continue to have a strong bond with the family. And that I knew that by coming back here, they'd be meeting with their cousins and their uncles and, you know, as well as their grandparents. And, you know, so... So we did that. So every summer, as soon as schools were out, we'd be we'd jump on a plane and and I'd be back with the kids for, you know, four or five, six weeks at a stretch staying with my mum. And as a result of that, you know, my boys all grew up with not only a close relationship with their cousins and uncles and and uh, grandparents, but also a really deep love of this place. And so they now have the same, you know, like, when can I next get over and I want to be here for longer and, you know, yeah. this sort of thing. So it's definitely, they've definitely got the bug, as it were. Um, I love that, so, that sense that's... of place and belonging and connection. That those It's like different th- th- um, strands that are knitted together and, and they don't pin you down, mm-hmm. they root you. They allow you to flourish and grow yeah. by their, their their connection to a place and people through that place. I think that's uh, that's very evident from what you're saying. And, and I think it's such an important thing, and I don't think we always recognise that enough. I think, you know, it, it's like people often... And I think it's something that maybe people are finding out at the moment because they're kind of stuck in a one place and so they're getting to know their immediate environment yeah. much better than they ever did before. Yeah. I mean, I know this is a kind of extremely beautiful place, but it's still that that association with somewhere where you notice the little differences, you get to know the rhythms, you get to understand the life that lives, the, the, the natural life that lives here. And building that sort of relationship is so important. Yeah. And we've sort of, the last sort of 50 years or so or more, I think we've been trying to push that away and saying it's nothing to do with us and we're much more, you know, above all that. You know, we have important things to do and places to be and money to earn. and you know, Digital watches. And it's sort of... We, we, <laughs> Yeah, and we lose sight of what really our bodies, our minds really need. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a sort of spiritual sense, but I just no, no, think it's, that, it's, and I notice most people that come and stay here, how they get that. You know, they just there's something about the place, and they kind of grab hold of it, and it means a lot to them. So, you know, I think it is. You know, I think more, the more and more that people can recognise the importance of getting to know a place well. Yeah. Um, for all of us, really.
that's a perfect bridging point to take us into the island then. What is the history of Ered? <laughs> that's a big question for you. <laughs> Tell me all its history from uh, Ice Age <laughs> onward, please. How many days do you <laughs> Yeah, so it's interesting. So here's the thing. I mean, what what and it was a bit like a light bulb moment for me because I'd only been coming in the summers, really. I mean, a fair couple of Christmases, but mostly it was the summers. So I really only got to see the place in July and August. And so being here year round, and particularly through the winter, when the bracken's not here, it was like this veil had been removed or a cloak had been removed from the island and you suddenly saw the real island underneath. It's every little bump and, and, and mound and whatever. And I remember going out the first, you know, through the first winter I was here and it felt like every time I went for a walk, I'd come across a pile of stones, a wall, you know, a, a, an interesting sort of mound. And it, and it's just, and, and then, the, you know, the shape of the land, you could see the old lazy beds and and it just I suddenly realized that the island had been really habitated in periods of time uh, people had been growing things here and living here and you know had left their mark and because basically nobody's done anything to the island at least once you get beyond the the, the sort of the, the lighthouse settlement Nothing's happened to the island. So you can stand on a hill. I mean, it's the same with lots of places in Mull, but it hits me here. You stand on a hill and you look at the view and you know that somebody stood on that hill 6,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, and had the same view and very little change, maybe a few more trees, you know. And it's that is quite, you don't get that in a lot of places in England because so much of the land has been completely changed by human processes, you know. But here... You know, the changes, the farming has been very much working with the environment. So it's the sheltered valleys, you know, the, the, the fertile bits that have been farmed, but the rest of the moorland and the hill is untouched. So I think for me, that was sort of revelation. It's like, oh, what? Who was here? Yeah. What are they doing? You know? Yeah, the continuity. Um, so I started, yeah, absolutely. And so I started sort of making a mental note of where I found things and then ended up sort of putting them on a map, you know, making a note, oh, well, here's a wall and here's a pile of stones and here's maybe a house foundation and 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 sort of getting, you know, I wonder what they are, you know, and reading up a little bit about it, but not really having, I don't have any history background, so having really no idea. And then I, ha I, I was speaking to Christine Leach from up near Pennygale Way and she, who's a very fascinating source of historical knowledge, and she said, well, my brother's an archaeologist. He might be quite interested. I mean, my, sorry, cousin, I think it is, uh, is an ar archaeologist, and he might be interested in, you know, coming to Arid and having a look, you know. So she put me in touch with him. He came over and he brought um, a friend with him who was also an archaeologist. P Peter's retired now, but this friend, Phil, currently works with Archaeology Scotland. And they came over and they stayed the weekend and they walked the island with me and I showed them all the different piles of stone and all the things. And it was just fascinating because they, you know, they were coming up with suggestions of what it was going to be. Of course, I assumed that they, you know, they're archaeologists, they will know and that they would point, point to a pile and say that is or that, <laughs> you know. Um, but it wasn't like that at all. It was much more conjecture and, you know, having a discussion. They just because, you know, and they you know the sort of a, the kind of view that you can see from here because the bronze age settlers would like often would place their houses and their 
their burial cairns in places that had a, a sort of vista out to the horizon because that was an important part of their sort of spiritual makeup. And, you know, so it would be that sort of discussion that you'd be going on. And it, so it was fascinating. And, you know, we were all sort of chipping in, well, maybe this is that or maybe it's that, you know. But we ended up with examples of, of habitation, you know, going back to Bronze Age. There's definitely, well, they think pretty definitely a burial cairn or more of those and some house foundations. Um, there's definitely Iron Age. There's a, a dun, you know, the fort. There's one of those that's already been established on the island. And then again, house foundations and then medieval stuff, you know. And so it, it, you just realize this place has been used. And then you think, well, why? You know, what's so special? And then you start thinking about the people, you know, what it was like in those days. And you have to shift your mindset because we, we're so much bound to looking at places in terms of access by car, you know, or rail. And in fact, that wasn't how people got around in those days. They used to see. And so you're then thinking, okay, well, if you look at it from a sea point of view and the people are moving up and down the west coast of Scotland and they're going over to Ireland and they're going round to the top of Scotland to, to Scandinavia and, you know, they get carrying on down the west coast and going to Europe. I mean, this is, you know, this has been going on for millennium. Um, in, this, in which case then Erid suddenly becomes quite a desirable stopping off place. You know, it's sort of a nice kind of route between, you know, the northern, the more northern islands and, and, and the south. So, and then you think, well, there's lots of sheltered harbours and there's, you know, there's fertile soil in places and, you know, some sheltered spots and for, for setting up a farm. So you can start, you know, when you start having that mindset, it changes the way you look at the place and you don't see this kind of what you thought of as a barren moorland with rocky outcrops. You start seeing it as somewhere that actually could be quite a good place to live so that was you know it was all that sort of changing of mindset for me and I'm sure that other you know historians and other you know local experts will say well yes of course <laughs> but for me it was like a revelation yeah of course so, yeah. <laughs> you know so I sort of enjoyed that so I mean I carry on every time I go out you know I find new bits to add to my collection as it were of, of, of possible you know what could that be and um recently with a with a neighbor who has a gps unit that can that can link with a computer program where it where ultimately we can map on and we can put entries onto a map onto an audience survey map so we started walking the walls so we're going to make a actually document every single walls but i think they are um and then sort of, sort of superimpose those on the map because i think that would be quite interesting particularly if we can you know over time start trying to sort of date the different walls and get a sense of which walls were erected when so that might be quite fun to do that's amazing um, so but here's so that's one side of it so I, so there's the arid that has been a sort of farming island for for millennium and probably not a lot of people ever lived here at one time to farming i mean there's not that many house foundations and i think for a while from about probably the 18th century onwards it was probably farmed from Fijian farm on on mull itself oh, i think right, they okay. they ran it i think there's no well there's no evidence in the census records there's no mention of a farm on Erid from the from the early 19th century whereas you know Fijian had uh, oh i don't know you know 70 people in the census there you know so, and same with not Volligan. so i think Erid became under their sort of auspices. But earlier than it's documented when the Duke of Argyle was running this part of the world, they there's records in their rental records as, as a farm on Erid. So I think there had been before that time. 
Another feature that makes Erid kind of unique is that you have this quiet, you know, subset of Mull, much of the same sort of life that's going on anywhere else with, with, you know, fairly tough conditions for people working and not the easiest weather to work in and, and, and people getting sick and all the rest of it. So basically sort of making a living as best you could. And then suddenly in the 1860s, this transformation happened, which was the building of the lighthouse. Because suddenly there were 180 men employed on Erid to build the lighthouse. And it wasn't just 180 men, it was their families as well. And they, so the families would be sort of billeted out, I suspect, on all the neighboring farms. Anybody, it was probably a bit like Iona now, you know, anybody with any bit of shed or <laughs> bothy, you know, would have somebody in it and to get some income. And then you'd have these um, laborers, some of them local. I mean, it was a very important, I'm sure, a very desirable place to work for local people. But they brought qualified stonemasons, quarrymen from Aberdeen and outside Edinburgh who knew how to work with granite. So they imported those, those people. And they had an industrial site of, of unbelievable proportions going on here compared to anything else. I mean, they built the lighthouse in a matter of, I mean, I think they started in 1866 or 67 and the light was lit in 72, which is pretty impressive wow. when you think that they can only have been on, on the reef for a few days every year. I mean, it was very difficult conditions to work in, but they had, the whole thing was run as a sort of military operation and they had the men when they couldn't work on the, on, on the reef you know, they'd be they'd be obviously um, quarrying the stone on the island and dressing the stone and, and making it all ready to go out. But then, when there were times when they 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 couldn't actually do any more building of the lighthouse, is they built the shore station, and so you had these really highly qualified stonemasons building the houses. So if, if you've never been to Erid, you should come if only to look at the quality of the building that went on to make this row of cottages, the, all the outbuildings and, 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 and workshops, the walls around all the gardens. I mean, it's just beautiful. Everything's, you know, all the stone shaped to fit, you know, curved tops to the walls. I mean, it really is a work of art. And I think for the local area, I mean, I just, you know, wonder what it must have been like for people in Benesson or, you know, yeah. Kintrar or Funafut, you know, with this, what was going on on, on Mull. And all the, you know, would have been a spin-off, I'm sure, with, you know, not only jobs, but, you know, there was perhaps getting, providing food. I don't know the details, but I think there were ways in which local people could could have benefited from the, the construction. So it just, and, I, and the noise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it must have been hammers ringing and, you know, sort of yells and people, a lot of blasting, of course, but just that, that amount of activity going on. I mean, there's various accounts. I read a newspaper account. And Robert Louis Stevenson, of course, there's another facet. He would visit because his father and uncle were working on the project. So he would visit. And that's the place was the stimulation for him to write things like Kidnapped and Treasure Island and things like that. But he also wrote some lovely memoirs of his visits, which are worth reading if you haven't ever come across those uh, descriptions of what it was like coming here. But the con you know, he talks about the contrast between the week when people were working and then Sunday when tools were downed and people had they had a little sort of service on the island and everybody would it would be quiet <laughs> so I find that you know I just find that such an interesting contrast and and quite special really
sort of imagining it. And then, and then, you know, afterwards, well, I suppose you've, you know, the lighthouse keepers and their families were here up until the 1950s, 40s. So, you know, there was a new form of activity here and people on the island. So, you know, it definitely was different, but uh, interesting. Yeah. And it's gone through. The- and they had a school. It had a school. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, there was a school on Erid. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was eight, fa- eight or nine families um, with anything presumably from one to five or six kids. And so there was the practicalities of getting off the island and going to the local school at Kreich meant it made a lot of sense to have a teacher here. So they had a resident teacher and one of the houses was for the teacher. And then they opened it up to local kids. So um, Bella Cameron, who used to live up at Not Volligan, used to come to school here. And so she would walk down and her father would ferry her across onto the island when the tide was in and she would come to school here. So I've had conversations with her just about that experience in itself. So, yeah, I mean, they had, you know, 12 plus children in the school. So quite, quite interesting. And there's some memoir, there's a number of, I think there's a couple of memoirs that I've come across of, of children of the lighthouse keepers re- recollecting their time on Erid. So it's quite interesting to read those. And what were the names yeah. of the families? Yeah, you mentioned McGilvery there uh, at the start. Was that right? Am I right in remembering that? Was it McGilvery's? Yeah, McGilvery was the family that lived here. Yeah, they they lived here, I'm trying to remember when they first came, end of the 19th century, I think. Katie was, was the last remaining one. She never married. She was a nurse in the First World War. Wow. Um, and a midwife. Um, and and by, quite a character by all accounts. I mean, I've, I've you know spoken to a few people that remember her. But then she had quite a few brothers so when she I mean she was born on the island and because it was her parents I think that came and so she and her brothers were brought up here some of the brothers were lost in the first world war died in the first world war I think one of the last remaining ones ended up being sort of employed by the lighthouse board you know as as postman and general maintenance Mm -hmm. guy and stuff like that so he had some work here yeah so they were here for quite a while and interestingly enough, talking to one of her nephews, his wife was still alive. She died just last year and she was living in Vanessa. And so I managed to get a chance to talk to her a few times before she died. And she can remember coming here with her husband and talked about how, you know, it was in the summers, you know, and fish and just sort of hang out at the, on, the, on the island. So it's kind of nice to feel that it had a bit of that history before we ended up here, you know, yeah. that there was something about the place that people, families would come and and congregate here lovely so yeah so yeah and it's been through the the island itself's been through the hands of different people so um the duke of Regal obviously had it, had it for a long time who was the gentleman you mentioned earlier on that that had it uh the triple barreled name oh yes so that was hamish dawson bowman who bought it from the duke of argyle when it was first put on the market back in the i believe in the 1950s so this was after the shore station had moved to oban so there was no longer the, 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 the no longer the lighthouse keepers, keepers and their families were living here. So the place was was sort of empty and a bit neglected. So Hamish Dawson Bowman bought it and loved this place, and I think he brought his family for a number of years, and I think had a, a deep a deep love of the island. Um, and then he sold it. What was uh, Bowman's story? Where was he from? I think he was from Glasgow. Um, I can't remember what his business was now i'm sorry um right. his son still comes up he has he he comes up and stays in Benesson and, and comes over to erid quite often so uh, there's still quite a strong family connection there 
so Dawson Bowman sold it on. Who did he sell it on to? Well, he sold it to the cows who only had it for a few years. And I don't think it was the right match for them, really. I don't think they really got the place. So they, they were only here for a short time. They did bring electricity, though, I have to say. Dawson Bowman didn't want electricity on the island, which was OK for him. But it was a bit unfortunate because all the farms from Funafut couldn't afford to bring electricity until Erid did it. Mm-hmm. So it meant that not Volligan and, and Fidgen had no electricity up until the time that Dawson Bowman sold and Cowell then said, yes, I'll, I'll chip in for the electricity line to brought. So uh, I, and I remember when we first came, the generator going at Fijian and not Volligan just had Caligas. They didn't, they didn't even have a generator. So, you know, it was an, an interesting impact. And, and so anyway, so yes, yeah, so Cal brought electricity and he started uh, employing uh, year-round on the island so that was you know that was good that meant there was somebody here all year round and you know in the place, a little bit but, uh, um but he was only here for, i forget now probably five five six years something like that maybe right. if that long and then he sold up and that's when the the dutch family the van der sluis bought it van der slaus sorry van der slaus bought it 41 years ago and they've had it since, and they have a, a real deep love of the island and have put a lot of money into renovating the houses. have done a be- really incredible job on re-roofing them all and getting all the walls repointed and putting in sewerage and um, just, a, just a huge amount of money they spent on it. So it, it, it's been a lovely job that they did. And then um, they, when they came, they wanted the island to be lived in. They didn't want it just to be a sort of holiday place, and they yeah. wanted the island lived in and looked after and also they wanted the opportunity for others to also enjoy coming so they established a relationship with the Fintorn community for a satellite group to be here as sort of caretakers but you know a bit more really with you know the responsibility of looking after the buildings and the gardens but also offering the opportunity of, of sort of visiting guests to come and stay and and that that arrangement has lasted. And even though the the community itself has changed, and because people don't stay more than a few years, the the overall relationship has stayed solid and has worked. And it means that there is a a core group of people on the island that keep the gardens together. They've got a tractor. They keep things going. Look after the the, the buildings, and have guests. So a lot of people have come to Erid who wouldn't have done otherwise yeah. um, uh, over the 40 years. Um, many, many visitors. Um, so, you know, I think it's, a, it's, been a, it's been a good arrangement. To be quite honest, I think it would have been very hard for my mum if they hadn't been there because then she really would have been the only person living on the island. So for her, it was very, very important having them there. And they were great with her. And, you know, they would use the tractor and get heavy stuff for her and, you know, and, and have the social... Uh, friendship they helped each other out in different ways she was a place they could come just to get away from the community and have a natter and cup of tea and you know so it was it was it worked out really well and she forged some very very strong friendships with them over the time and we we now have inherited that because the people that used to come were on the island when mum was here and now come and stay with us you know because that's the connection they they knew mum you know and so they know us now so so it's there's a sort of extended family a lot of whom 
originally came to be part of the of the Fintorn community. So it's just interesting how that's worked. And it's good for me to, for the same reasons. It's lovely to have other people on the island, to have people to share stuff with, to have help with heavy stuff. You know, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, and it makes a big difference to being able to live here. That's yeah. fantastic. Is there <laughs> anything else you want to say before we before we conclude at all? Is there anything you think that stands out? Is there anything you want you think this is this should be a testament for years to come of something that you think of? Oh gosh, it's a big a big question. <laughs> uh, no, but I do think it's important that you now change your title <laughs> to include Erin in recognition that there have been people living here for a long time. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time on this, Judy. I really appreciate it. It was an honour to get a chance to talk with you. I hope that this rectifies the omission of Erid from my map. One day soon, I hope to actually set foot on the island and, and come and say hello too. I am conscious that there's a good few omissions on the podcast map. I've not really spoken to anyone from Salon, Craigenure, Loch Don, or anyone connected to Inch Kenneth and Little Collinsy. So I'm looking to rectify this in the coming episodes. So please excuse me if you feel that your community isn't particularly well represented in this project as of yet. As I've said before, I'm, I'm navigating it from point to point as the track unfolds before me. A friend who listens to the podcast lately was asking about other podcasts to listen to. Well, there's so, so many out there. If you're particularly interested in something, there will be a whole host of podcasts around that subject without a doubt. Recently, I've been really appreciating the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast by Siobhan Clark. Siobhan shares a wealth of myths, legend and lore with the listener, going through the tales and exploring their meaning and cultural context. She looks at Norse and Celtic myths and much more. If you're a regular listener to What We Do in the Winter, there's a very high chance that you'll love Siobhan's work, and also her book, The Children of Midgard. During lockdown and the whole pandemic period, I've been away from the news. I just can't stand it. It's just too upsetting. So the only news source that I've really engaged with on a regular basis is the Big Light Network's talk media show. It's hosted by Stuart Cosgrove and Eamon O'Neill. And each week they talk to a guest about the key issues of the news that from that week and take it apart with a critical eye. I love it. And it's so good to hear such fine broadcasting in a Scots voice without the constraints of mainstream broadcasting. I can't recommend it strongly enough. The Big Light have a whole host of other podcasts that may be of interest too, all created here in Scotland by some of the very best in broadcasting. They're a really positive stable with amazing things in store, so do check them out. Links are on our webpage. Another podcast that makes me smile is The Offcut Straw by Laura Shaven. To quote the podcast's website, The Offcut Straw is a podcast where successful writers share the contents of their bottom drawer the bits of writing they never finished, had rejected, or they just liked to hold on to for nostalgic reasons. Actors perform these pieces, and the writer chats to the host, Laura Shaven, about the stories behind them. It's a podcast created with love and passion, and it's very, very much worth your time if you're interested in writing and performance. I have a kitten beside me who is trying to take the blind down. Temple, stop that. Naughty. Come and have a wee perfect listener. That's Temple Grandin, one of our two new kittens. Hello, Temple. Right. Another network to check out is Great Big Owl. They've got so, so many brilliant shows that will raise a smile on your face. Particular favourites in our household include Plenty Questions, a short quiz show, Box of Delights, Julia Rayside's superb TV Memories podcast, 
the rule of three, where comedy writers and performers talk about the work that influenced their careers, and Cabin Fever, where two very silly boys talk unstructured nonsense with friends and guests. Do check out Great Big Owl's Stable, they're brilliant. Needless to say, I can't recommend the work of Adam Buxton highly enough. His recent episodes talking about loss and grief have been among the best broadcasting I've heard in years. Right, that's a couple of recommendations for you. Hope, hope they please you. I've recorded another few episodes of the podcast, so there's lots more to come from What We Do in the Winter. I'm also going to try and edit the recent What We Do in the Winter live at home episode, which was themed around the sea, down into maybe a couple of podcasts. It's quite long, though it may take me a wee while to do that. Thank you to all who came along to that, especially those of you who gave your time to speak, including Sheena, Davy, Ian, Nick, John, Sandy, and more. Hmm, my kitten has knocked my laptop over. And thanks to our listeners from across the world, it was so lovely to have you there. Just before I go, I wanted to say that when I was editing this episode, Judy's precise choice of words to describe Edit reminded me of the work of Kathleen Jamie. If you get the chance, please do check out her writing. She's one of the most precise wordsmiths around. Look out for both findings and sightlines amongst the rest of her work. She's a total master of the craft. Thank you to my mates Gav and Malcolm for pointing me in her direction. I really appreciate that. Also, check out the recent episode of Scotland Outdoors on Radio Scotland, where Kathleen performs some readings. If you want to support the podcast, please feel free to click the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But... Don't worry if you can't or you don't want to. I'd much rather you listened and went on an adventure with us than not. And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. I really appreciate it. It brings a big smile to my face every time I see your names come up, so thank you so much. If you could leave a star review on whichever platform you listen to, I'd be really grateful. It just helps to spread the word about the project and makes these stories more accessible to more and more listeners. I think they're really special, these stories, so if it's possible, please leave a, a star review somewhere. Thank you. And thank you, as always, to those of you who reach out and say hello. It makes my day to hear from you. Thank you for listening. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. More and thank. Shinakade. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Richard Fairbairns of Dervik, who passed this week. <laughs>